0: Welcome to Well Connected, a podcast for faculty, staff, residents, and fellows of UT Health Houston, brought to you by the UT Health Employee Assistance and Wellbeing Programs Office. I'm Julie Van Orden.
1: And I'm Ann Alvarado. The goal of Well Connected is to create opportunities for employees to connect the dots between three things. What's going on in our head and heart, how these thoughts and feelings affect our well-being. And where we can find resources through the university to work toward a resolution.
0: Today, our guest is one of our own, Delphi Medina. Delphi has been employed with UT Health Houston's Employee Assistance Program since 2010. Delphi received her undergraduate degree from UT Medical Branch at Galveston in Healthcare Administration and her Master's of Social Work from the University of Houston. Her career in the addictions and mental health field began in 1994 and she specializes in behavioral addictions and has an extensive experience in chemical addictions. Delphi has conducted workshops in the local community, in the state, and at the national level, all in the diction field. She also has very her very own private practice working with individuals, couples, and families.
1: Welcome to the conversation, Delphi. Thank you. So Delphi, before we get started, um, can you let us know the preferred or recommended language that we should be using that is non-judgmental and supportive when we're talking about addiction? So
2: in the past, and currently within the rooms, as we call it, within 12-step fellowships, um, people will identify themselves as a recovering addict or they're recovering from himself or herself. Um, In the past, it's been alcohol abuse and alcohol dependence or whatever the drug of choice is. According to DSM-4-TR, we are now in DSM-5-TR, and so it's substance use disorder and alcohol use disorder. So now it's a person who's living with alcohol use, alcoholism, a person who is living with substance use, substance abuse.
0: You know, before we started recording today, when we were walking down the hall here, you started talking about um, the difference between behavioral addictions and chemical or substance use addictions. And so probably uh, wanna clear up that this is not about, uh, cause it didn't occur to me before until you asked me that question. And so behavioral addictions are about other types of things, but today we're here to talk about chemicals, substance of
2: choice addictions. So chemical would involve alcohol and any of your other type of category of drugs. To be clear, behavioral addictions is such as sex addiction, gambling, Workaholism, their are process addictions that are through behaviors. Chemical addictions is what you ingest outside of food. Yeah,
0: and today's episode isn't really just for people; it's for it's for families. It's Correct. for living with and loving somebody who is uh, in a
2: substance use disorder. But
0: addictions is okay. Not using the word disorder.
2: Um, yeah, addictions is okay. I think just with these days and times, it's the appropriate etiquette and not having the stigma. I mean, who wants to be called an addict? But right. Uh-huh. It's very it's very touchy these days. So that's why they're saying they're in recovery
1: or they're using or they're under the influence.
2: Great. Thanks a lot mm-hmm. for
0: that distinction. I know words matter to me.
1: Yeah, yeah. I just yeah. want to move on with this um, podcast with... Um, respect for these folks Mm -hmm. Um, when you you had said the word stigma earlier can you give us an example of um, stigma related to to these types of substance use disorders
2: I think just being called an agma an addict is stigma Uh and so um, people need to be very careful it's one way of being in the rooms when you're in the rooms because you're there for that particular addiction and how they refer to themselves Um, It's another thing of being called, like, that's a person who's a crack addict or that's a person who's a down-and-out alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Um, These people, these individuals are dealing with a disease, and I think some people really forget that addiction is a disease, and it's in the DSM. And for those who get treated, use their insurance, and that's how it gets paid for, through their insurance, if they're lucky to have it.
0: Yeah, so when you say in the rooms, I have some ideas just from other
2: parts of my life that I think I know what you mean, but can you maybe So explain in the what? rooms means for people who are in recovery, they go to twelve step fellowship meetings. So for a person who is dealing with alcoholism in their life, that is Alcoholics Anonymous. For someone who is dealing with cocaine in their life, that's cocaine anonymous. And so any of those 12-step fellowships, when they're going to meetings, they're meeting in the rooms. Now, that changed during the pandemic because we all had to go on screen and go online. Mm -hmm. But before the pandemic, pre-COVID, as we say, um, people were going to churches to different buildings that were standalone that those fellowships pay for to rent. And they have meetings there all the time. So that's what I mean by in the rooms, people attending 12-step meetings to get support and talking about their issues with whatever drug of choice that they're using. I also have noticed
0: used. another word you're using that's different in my world, and that's the word fellowship.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it's such a more inviting room, you know?
2: Yeah, well, that's the premise when you think back of the roots of Alcohol Anonymous and those two founding fathers are... Dr. Bob and Bill W. that very much people are aware about. Um, my Name is Bill W., which is a very uh, famous Hallmark movie with James Woods and James Garner, for those of y'all who are old enough to remember them, <laughs> uh, Rockefeller and all them. So um, that's a great movie to learn about AA history. And they are the ones that started AA, which is the founding father of all the 12-step fellowships. And they helped each other keeping sober because they met and would meet with other people who were dealing with the same issues as them. And so AA is the founding father for any of the other 12-step fellowships, whether that be cocaine, whether that be methamphetamine, whatever the case may be, it's founded off the basis of AA.
0: So let's shift to the family. How do or how does addiction or recovery
2: or the disorder affect relationships with others? Well, unfortunately, it does affect everybody in the household. Um, One of my specialties is family of origin, so when someone is living in the primary household who is dealing with alcoholism or a a specific drug of choice, and I always get into that controversy of alcohol is a drug, but for some reason they separate alcohol from I see. marijuana, cannabis, whatever you want to call it, methamphetamine, cocaine. And so to me, a drug's a drug, a drug. Alcohol mm-hmm. just gets separated for whatever reason. Um, but it affects the family because the loved one who is under the influence is not present, first and foremost, because they're under the influence and they're not sober. So they may be putting priority to other things than putting priority to their family members, to their daily responsibilities. And I don't want to go in stream extreme and say that, well, when, you, when you're dealing with these issues, people don't go to work. They don't pay the bills. Their families aren't getting fed. They're not putting clothes on their kids. That's one aspect of it. But the other part that I really feel that in my own practice and working with a lot of people in regards to family of origin is that when you're... Under that influence, you're not present. So when you have a little baby or when you have a little kid and you're drinking beer and you're watching football and that little kid's wanting your attention, but you're over here drinking or you're smoking or whatever the case may be, the kid's wanting your attention and your 100% engagement and attention's not there. And ultimately, that child is getting neglected. And over a long period of time, If a person is continuing going to happy hour instead of showing up to eat dinner with the family or do homework or whatever, that's neglect. And that can end up turning into big T trauma Mm. within family of origin issues that I see in my office that I deal with a lot because parents weren't showing up. Parents weren't showing up for the games because they were out drinking and using. Parents were doing all these other things. If it was the parent. It could be some of the parents who are extreme are in jail because of their addiction because they've had legal consequences or who have died because they've overdosed, which we all have heard about fentanyl lately. I would be really scared to be buying street, uh, buying street drugs right now because you don't know what's, what's in it. Um, people aren't there. So the one thing that I know that a child wants is 100% engagement. From their primary caregiver and if that's not their primary caregiver and they're having to get raised by grandparents because they're in jail or they're in treatment or whatever the case may be they're neglecting their kid because the kid wants their mom the mm-hmm. kid wants their dad and that's where I see a lot of trauma because that's trauma and the general definition of trauma is anything less than nurturing.
0: Wow we got a high standard
1: <laughs> in all of life. Anything less than nurturing. Oh, my goodness. You're taking me somewhere else here. But um, I want to actually go back to when you were discussing, you had mentioned something about um, going to happy hour every day. So I just had a thought in my head. Mm-hmm. Where is that line? So I go to happy hour every so often, and, you know, it gets more often. Where Where is that line? And when it's crossed, when does that become um, – Substance use disorder.
2: So I think it it starts when you start noticing that hey, if I'm going to happy hour and when I get home I'm crashing instead of spending time with my kids because mm-hmm. I'm totally buzzed. Right? Well, what if I don't yeah. have kids? And yeah. so if you don't have <laughs> kids, it's like okay, so if you have your partner, life, you know, husband, spouse, what, whoever, are you spending time with them? Or are you crashing? Because some people. They can have a couple of drinks and go home and go do the laundry. And you know, others, some people go past their limit mm-hmm. and then they go home and they just crash or they zone out to TV or to Netflix or whatever the case may be. So it's about what is your awareness of what are your limits are. So that's what we call boundaries with drinking or boundaries with whatever. And because some people who do have true addictive personality disorder, they're they're not able to keep those limits. They're not able to keep those boundaries. And so they may have an intention of drinking too, mm-hmm. but they end up drinking 4 to 6. Mm-hmm. And then what is their limits about driving? Are they not driving or are they calling Uber or Lyft or Alto? Cuz we have Alto in Houston. So <laughs> it's like so what it's finding out, are you starting to miss deadlines? Are you starting to come up with excuses to go and do whatever compulsive behavior that you're doing in regards to alcohol or drugs instead of showing up and doing, oh, well, I didn't go to the grocery store, I'll go tomorrow because such and such invited me here. When you start realizing that you're putting a lot of focus around whatever the chemical substance is and you're neglecting other everyday responsibilities or you're not showing up for people like you normally were, then that's when you may be passing that line. In old-school chemical dependency education is stage one, stage two, stage three, and stage four. Stage one is like, oh, regular experimentation. The gateway drugs of old is nicotine and caffeine and marijuana and inhalants. A lot of people would say, what do you mean inhalants is a gateway drug? Well, when you think of inhalants, they're pretty cheap. So if people don't have money to buy other stuff, you know, they can huff liquid paper, they can huff spray paint, they can huff freon. they can huff gas from your car. Mm-hmm. That did not cost very much. You can huff nail polish remover. That doesn't cost very much, two for one at the dollar store. It's a cheap high. It's going to ruin your brain pretty quick, but it's a cheap high. So... For those, that's just experimentation. When you get into stage two, you may or may not have some consequences. You know, when you're in high school and you're at prom and you're drinking and that's the thing to do, you may get a public intoxication. When you go into stage three and you start getting DWIs or DUIs, that's crossing that line that it's no longer. It's one thing about showing up late to work or you're missing a school project or you're doing all that partying during college because sometimes that's what college is known for, unfortunately. But if you cross into that line and it's like, you know, if you're drinking six days a week, three to four drinks a day, that's pretty heavy alcohol intake. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're smoking three joints, you know, mm-hmm. one in the morning, one at lunch, and one at night to go to bed, that's, that's pretty significant. And that may be a daily thing. Don't know, everybody's different, but that's when you're getting. When you think of stage four, you're thinking of chronic, you're thinking of medical, you know, complaints. Um, some people are in jail. Some people have died, I mean, those are the extreme cases. Mm -hmm. You know, you're thinking of withdrawals in DT because you don't have alcohol because you've been drinking alcohol daily. Mm -hmm. You've been drinking a lot. So it depends on the individual.
0: When you talk about the um, experiment and the the huffing and all of that, I will say that, I mean, one of the first things I thought of is that's a younger population Mm -hmm. and maybe Our kids, and that's because it's cheap, it's easy, and it's under the radar, maybe a mom and dad?
2: Yeah, not many people think of inhalants as a gateway drug. They'll think of nicotine, smoking cigarettes. They'll think of alcohol. They'll think of Mm. marijuana, cannabis, whatever you want to call it. But they don't really think of inhalants. The new one is pills because they're readily accessible. So any of the prescription pills like opiates, Mm -hmm. they're more considered gateway now. A lot of people who have ADD or ADHD diagnosis, a lot of people who don't have that, that's an amphetamine. So that's a stimulant and they get high off that if they don't have that particular diagnosis. And they're pretty easy to get. So
0: what you've really expressed so far in our conversation shows me just the breadth of what we're up against. So uh, if you're listening, I want you to think about, you know, all of the information and where it fits into your life. Does any of this resonate with you with regard to children in your life, a loved one that is uh, a producer as far as the family income in your life, to yourself? There's really a a colleague, a good friend. So really take all of the information and find what fits and what's useful for you. I really want to go back to you, Anna, and the the question you had a minute ago, because I think I heard it a little bit different in that where's the line if I'm going to happy hour? I'm wondering, can we go further back into um, I'm going out and maybe I'm not completely dropping the ball. Is there something like
2: a functional uh, addict or abuser? There there is that. Um, Tell us what that looks like. So it is, is exactly what you said. It, you're, you can be functional. You can be paying the bills. You, you know, nothing is dropping. You're showing up to work, but you're being able to have a high tolerance and do what you do every day or five four to five times a week. The question is, is that, again, I'm going to stick a lot in the focus of this podcast is being present. How present are you? I love that word. If you are under the influence of something, you're not 100% present. I can say you're not 100% present if you're out there smoking cigarettes. Mm -hmm. You're not 100% present even if you have one drink. Where I'm talking about how it affects, because the original question is, how does this impact family members and loved ones? Mm -hmm. So is it true if you come from family members who have predisposition and they have alcoholism issues or they have um, drug addiction issues. Yes, it can be genetic predisposition, but also as I teach family of origin stuff, how many of us have always said, I'm never going to end up like my mom and dad, not to say that they have alcohol and drugs, but what happens? We end up doing things that we said we would never do like our mom and dads, right? But when we're little kids, what do little kids do when they look up? Who are they looking up to? And if their caregivers are drunk all the time and buzzed at home, that's gonna, they're gonna absorb that. When they get upset and they scream and rage, or they hit walls, and I'm not saying that all people who are in influence do this, but they pick up that. And it's not like the parents are saying, hey, I'm gonna teach you to be a rager. I'm gonna teach you to have anger issues. I'm gonna teach you to not say anything when you know that you're seeing your parents fight and one shuts down silent and not talking to the other. Kids remember that. Mm -hmm. And if they're not protecting their children from that, that's the impact and then mm-hmm. some of those kids don't know how to talk about feelings they don't they don't understand and if the parents aren't explaining to them and they're just saying daddy drinks or mama drinks or dad's eyes look weird or dad's sleeping or mom's sleeping all the time and they're not being told they're just sitting there like what's wrong with me why aren't they paying attention to me and that's what i mean about being present mm-hmm.
0: uh, so how that resonates for with me I, you know Self-disclosure time. Um, so I was raised in a family with uh, two alcoholics, my mother and my father. My father was um, uh, probably the most noticeable. But what I what I love about your word presence is while it could go to the extreme at some times, most of the time it was just, oh... He's not himself today. And it wasn't that, you know, there was anything aggressive going on in the home. It just wasn't that fun daddy. Even if he was playful, it was a different kind of playful. It was just like, you know, crazy off the wall stuff instead of fatherly secure, all of that. And I I think that that's what a lot of people, when they start heading down that road, they don't realize is that just the tone of your voice, the way you park your car, the look on your face, um, the way you walk in a room, the way you respond to each other, um, it really or to those in the house,
2: it matters and it's noticed. It's really noticed. So I identify with what you said because myself, my father was alcoholic. He is deceased and has been deceased for eight years. So, in the rooms or in the field, it's like you're an adult child of an alcoholic. Right. So, Mm -hmm. they had 12-step fellowships at ACOA, and that's one of the hardest 12-step fellowships to do because you're talking about family dynamics. Mm -hmm. You're having to talk about how you were raised and what you picked up. My dad never was with my mom and dad, and I was a single child up until 10 years before my sister was born. So I wanted my dad there, but he wasn't. So it was me and my mom always eating dinner alone instead of having a family dinner. And because my dad was out drinking, he wasn't always at my volleyball games or my basketball games and all that. And thus, one of the things for me is that I always wanted that male attention because I didn't get that from my primary number one male figure in my life. Right. Because of that. And that's a big impact, I think, of what you were asking about. And that started from little all the way up. Now, did I get more attention as I got older and I was out of the house? Did I get a lot of attention because I went to A&M and he was class of 65? Yeah. <laughs> I got a lot of attention from that because I, I was seeking his approval. And I got it at that time. But I wanted it younger, but I had to feel like I had to excel. I had to keep, you know, get these goals so that he would notice me to take him away from that. Yeah. And so those are the impacts I want people to understand that maybe they don't. And that's why I think no matter whether a primary caregiver has any types of these issues, you always have family of origin work to do. Mm-hmm. And I do want to precedent. Um, I'm trained and have been very lucky and very blessed to have been trained by Pia Melody, who's one of the founding fathers and codependency which is considered a stigma word these days Um, you can look at it as attachment disorder now the politically correct Mm -hmm. but i will say that um, it's very important to look at family origin issues and she'll be the first one to say your parents did the best that they could if i asked either one of you did you go to parenting 101 class before you had your children yes no no okay so all we can do is do the best that we can do of what's been handed down, not only from our parents, but our grandparents and our great-grandparents. And it's a way to stop those cycles is to be aware and do your family of origin work, whether or not you have addiction issues or not in your background.
1: Thank you. You talked earlier about um, these individuals making excuses I kind of want to dig a little bit deeper into all these um, – is that a typical behavior? I just kind of want to dig in. What are those typical behaviors? They can be looked at as excuses.
2: It can be looked at as rationalizations or justifications on why I do the things that I do. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I actually had an interaction with one of my private clients the other day, and he was like, well, addiction is not a choice. okay. I agree. It's Sometimes a that's, you know, it's mental health is a disease, but it gets handed down. And um, his partner said, Well, but you made the choice to continue using. You chose to lie to all of your treatment team and us in telling us that you were sober and you were using. And he's like, Well, I didn't choose to be an addict. That doesn't negate about still making that choice. So he wasn't completely under the influence 24-7. There was He was making choices to use and to lie, and he wasn't under the influence. He was already building up to get back to using.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I think that's where, if I'm answering that question correctly, it's about you know being able to be accountable for the choices that you make. Yes, you are, you are dealing with a disease, but also is being accountable for continuing to make those same choices and having the where's. Awareness to develop different coping skills and strategies, and um, better living behaviors.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, how do we help someone that we love who's suffering? Well, because if they all, don't see it, and we off, see it, they have to
2: want to go. <laughs> it, it's you know, it's twofold. If someone's in self of um, harm of themselves or others, there's one way to get them help. And that's a forced way, but if they're threatening to harm themselves or they're threatening to harm others, that's one way to get them help. But if they're wanting help, you know, and, and if they have resources, whether that's insurance or whether they have they have money and and you know family money, um, and even if they don't, there's plenty of nonprofits and grant-funded facilities to go and get treatment. It's if they're willing to look at it. Some people will walk through that door because they've been given ultimatums, you know. Spouses will say, I'm divorcing, I'm going to take your children away. That's one way. And I'm not saying that's not an inspiration or motivation to get through the door to get help. It's another is that some people get scared and they die, and they literally die, and they come back, and then they're scared, and they get sober for a while, and then they end up using again, and they forget about that they almost died on the table. These are extreme things, but I will say that for a person who wants to get help, You know, go walk into the Houston Council on Recovery and go get an assessment. You can come to EAP and we can give you an assessment. If you've got insurance with us for UT, we have Blue Cross Blue Shield, you can get a free assessment at any of the treatment facilities in town. They're not going to charge you anything, and they'll determine what level of care that you need to get help. And there's totally different levels of care. When people say, oh, I don't want to go to treatment, i got to go to detox, well, you may not have to detox. It just depends on how often you're using and how much you're using. You may just need to go residential, you may need to go inpatient, you may need to go partial hospitalization program, you may need to be IOP, and you can live at home and still go to treatment. But you have to get assessed to determine what's the best level of care for you at that time. So that's an option. I didn't
0: hear cutting back. I could just cut back. (laughs) Because I I think there's
2: a reality in that. There There is, and and it's called harm reduction. And I think, you know, you don't necessarily always have to go into treatment. You can just try to go show up into one of the 12-step fellowship programs and go listen to other people. That might jog you into, like, hey, I need to cut back or... Maybe I just want to do this on my own. I'm not saying that there's a rare bird that can just gold coat turkey and not even do 12 step fellowship and just stop. There are those rare birds that can do that. But with what Bill W. and Dr. Bob proved in AA and what I know in the 12 step community is that you need other people who have been in your shoes to help you because no one knows what it's like to crave and urge, you know, alcohol or snort up cocaine or shoot up meth or whatever the case may be except another person who does that like you. Family members can help all they want, but if they don't do that, they're not going to know what it's like for you to go through those cravings and withdrawals. So they need to have those people who do to help them through and give them the motivation and know that they're not alone.
1: Thank you. I want to turn this around on the person with substance use disorder, Mm -hmm. do you, in your opinion, this is a really hard one, do you think they can truly love someone?
2: I think love is universal. Are they able to love sober and be more present when they're not under the influence? Most definitely. Can they love while they're under the influence? The question may be how much are they under the influence and do they remember? So to me, again, it goes back to presence. So, because I want someone who's 100% engaged, who's aware, sees those minute things. I'm not saying that you can't go have a couple of drinks and go have Mexican food and margarita and not be able to love that person. What I'm saying is, is that there's a big thing about being presence. Because I know, in the other stuff that I specialize in, I see tons of people dating at the table and they're like this on their phones and they're not being present with each other. They're not talking. Mm-hmm. To me, that's not a date. Put the phone down. Yeah. They're you know, texting. They're yeah. texting. They're they're talking on the phone. Now it's one thing if they're like us in the healthcare field and we're on call, and we're mm-hmm. <laughs> having to take a phone call. But it's another thing about, Hey, I don't see you 24 seven. So I want your time right now in front of me. Put the phone down. This is our time together because we don't get that much Especially if we're got different schedules and stuff, so I believe yes, they can love. They're just not as present.
1: That's my answer.
0: That's relieving.
1: <laughs> That's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> I. Well, how do you know when it's time to let go? Because. You've Be gone part. through this whole thing. Be more specific. Please. I'm, as someone who has been trying to live with someone, um, coping with um, this disease. You've tried your hardest. You're with them through all the steps, and it's just not getting any better for you. And I just, my heart breaks for those folks and you want to keep holding on but how do you know when it's time to maybe it's time to let go or should you just keep powering through or where 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 does that boundary
2: lie I have two examples if okay. I have enough time to say yes. That. yes yeah so I have two examples so one is I'll use with my my fellow colleague he has a um, cousin and Lots of alcohol. Nobody here at UT Health. No. no, 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 Nothing to do with UT Health. Um, His cousin, lots of alcohol and drug issues. And parents, very wealthy, put him into treatment. Every treatment recommendation once he finished treatment was, hey, he needs to go into a sober living environment, not go back to the home environment. Because guess what? His parents were what? Drinkers. Yeah. So how is that helpful for him to go straight back into that environment right. and suck it up to parents not being supportive by not having that stuff and wonder why he relapses. No, he's not gonna he's gonna come with us because we love him. And went through several treatment rounds because they wouldn't do that. That's hard. So, and then if they were to do that, and they were to not drink when he's around, what do they have to face themselves? Not that their son is sober. They're having to look at themselves sober. Hmm. So if they don't take it, they can still focus on the son who's the one messing up. Oh. Yeah. That's one example. Okay. Second example is that, You can do all that you need to do for someone. And this is what P.M. Melody taught me. Are you choosing to do it because they can't do it? Are you choosing to do it and there's ulterior motive of why you're doing it? Because then we look at that not-so-nice word, enabling, if you continue to rescue them and do the stuff that, that they can do for yourself just because you're not allowed or you can't allow yourself to detach and let go. And I know that's really hard for, for parents who have children, especially the adolescents and stuff, of enabling them and saying, you know, we'll do all this. And sometimes you got to do tough love because they won't learn. Mm-hmm. So you have to question your motives on why is it that you continue to do for that person or why is it that if you don't do it, how is that going to make you feel? And, and what's the cost of
0: losing them if let's right. say they're a provider in the household? Yeah. And you have a family. I mean, it's a tough question that you ask. It really is. Yeah. And there's no and I think it probably the answers are very individual. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate what you did with your first answer in giving us the other side of that, because mm-hmm. the first thing you think about, you know, when you think about is there a time to do you keep persevering, or is there a time to let go? As you think about the the people living with the person who is trying to re- find recovery, but they they have to come back into the environment. I think
2: that's very yeah. very important to consider. He's doing well now, that person, but yeah. he had to leave that environment. Choices. Back it's choices. to the choices. It's
1: choices. Well, speaking of recovery, how do you rebuild and recover those relationships? Well, a lot of it is,
2: um, you know, if they're in the rooms and they're going to 12-step programs, they're going to be doing their 12 steps. So that's a lot of self-reflection toward themselves, Mm -hmm. which also has an impact of others. Because when you're looking at the amend steps, it's being able to do direct amends to the family, family members or people that they've hurt doing their... Their trying years, being under the influence of whatever it is, and making amends to them when it's not harmful to that person. So I think it's that. I think it's also like, you know, are they doing individual therapy? Are they working on family of origin issues and figuring out why it is that they ended up making those choices or developing those coping skills? So it's, it's not like, you know, I go to treatment, I go to 12-step, I'm sober and that's it. That's a lot outside. But how are you changing inside? And whether you're in chemical addiction or behavioral addiction, I know a lot of people want to see the internal change. So as a common term in the 12-step community, are you talking the talk and walking the walk? You can say a whole bunch of words, but are your words being followed up by behaviors and actions? And I know for all the significant others, for people who are dealing with these issues partners you know wives spouses children they want to see the internal change Mm -hmm. not the external change because the term dry drunk you could stop drinking but you can still be mean you can still be angry you can still rage i've never heard of that term oh yes if they're not changing that might as well continue drinking because they want that to stop because they're still craving.
0: That's why exactly. they're angry and that's why they're mean is that they, it hasn't moved from here down mm-hmm. to here. So the heart, I know I every significant
2: the other or the person who's closest to the one living with the disease, they want the internal change. It's mm-hmm. not just the external
0: What does that change. look like? So for the, somebody who's listening that says, well, I'm making all these
2: changes, what does it look like to the More potential? compassion, more empathy, you know, changing the raging the presence. Being, being, being present, um, acknowledging and not rationalizing and justifying on why they didn't do what he or she was supposed to do. Accepting um, the sober. responsibility. Accepting responsibility. Yeah. I love being health. accountable. Nice. Mm, thank you. Thinking, thinking of the other person instead of himself or herself first, because this is what I always say to people with these issues. Yes, you are selfish in your addiction. You're more selfish in recovery
0: oh really because look at all the hurdle. time
2: look how much time the addiction has taken away from their loved ones well look how much time they need to invest so they can continue to stay as their loved ones they need to be going to meetings they need to be going to therapy they need to be doing lots of stuff to help improve all right tell us something hopeful you can do it i believe there's help out there It takes a lot to walk through that door, but I promise you, if you walk through that door, you will get help. I know if you walk through my door, you're going to get help. I know if you walk through the UTEAP doors, you're going to get help. If you go walk to the Council on Recovery in Houston, you're going to get help. When you walk into any of those hospitals, you're going to get help. Just walk through the door. And it's going to be hard, but you can do it. You can do it. Everybody has resilience. The other thing that I always said, and this is from my... Prison days when I worked with... um, Not when you were incarcerated, (laughs) but when you were... (laughs) When I was a prison alcohol drug treatment counselor. (laughs) To me, anybody who are dealing with um, chemical dependency issues, they are very strong. They are the strongest people that I know. So if they can survive that, even if they are in jail, they can survive and they can get through recovery. You just have to channel it differently. They are very resilient. I love
0: that.
1: Well, I think that is our time.
0: That's a great ending point. I really love that. I mean, I heard, really, you started out with telling us about it being a disease. Mm -hmm. And they're the strongest people you know Mm -hmm. because they've overcome. They're recovering constantly and forever. There's a reason they're
2: doing this. It's not just because they've learned from parents. I mean... It could be physical abuse, it could be sexual abuse, it could be emotional abuse, it could be bullying, it could be neglect, it could be all these sorts of trauma, it could be rejection. You just got to figure out where that came from and start working on that because I promise you, you are a really, truly deserved individual to be on this earth and worthy of love.
0: Final word is that. Oh, thank you, you, Delphi. Delphi. You're awesome. Thank you so much. I loved that. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Well, listeners, for more information about this topic and how employee assistance and well being program services may be of assistance to you, please call our office at 713 500 3327, and our confidential team will direct you to the faculty or staff representative who can help you. You can reach us at 247 365 You may also contact Anna and me by email at wellness at uth.tmc.edu and it's also important for you to know that many of the EAP and well-being services are available to your dependents. Thank you so much for listening.